You're listening to Center Church Podcast. At Center Church, we strive to keep Jesus at the center of everything we do. You're about to hear a message from our pastor, Matthew Edwards. But before you do, we want to invite you to visit our website at centercharlotte.org. There you can sign up for our weekly emails and receive new content as we release it. Secondly, we want to invite you to visit our pastor's blog at matthewedwards.cc. And finally, if this podcast ministered to you in any way, go ahead and subscribe and you'll be the first to know when we release more content in the future. Thanks for listening in and be blessed. Change or try to find out how to be a better person, but our job tonight is to rest and look at Jesus and let Jesus take over. Let Jesus take care of the rest. So tonight, Father, as I do this Bible study and as we receive, not just those who are watching and listening, but Father, even myself, Tonight, as we open your word and behold your glory, I thank you that you're transforming all of us, each and every one of us, right where we are. So tonight, Father, we thank you for the opportunity and the ability to sit here and be able to see more of Christ. And we thank you for it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Sweet. Well, let's go ahead and get to it. Um, If you have your Bible, you can actually open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And uh, we're just going to take our time and go through this. This is Bible study. So with Bible study, we don't have to like show every single verse. Uh, but I want to encourage you to write down the verses and you can go back and read them for yourself. But 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to start there. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to read verse 14 um, and 15. You can read the context for yourself. Normally, I love to read the context. But for this passage in particular, I don't want to read the context uh, just for the sake of time because I'm, I'm coming somewhere. But I want you to see this. This is amazing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the Apostle Paul, um, well, I'll just tell you the context. Paul is pretty much saying, hey, look, you know, I came to the church in Corinth. We set up this church and he wrote his first letter. And some time has passed between his first letter and he's looking back at the church and he's getting a report that the church is not in a good place. Um, there's a lot of people who are claiming to be wise, claiming to be, you know, I follow this person, I follow that person. So they're all trying to kind of... Uh, um, you know, it started off great. And Paul said, look, you know, let me correct the things that are going wrong. First Corinthians, the first book. But then after uh, that first book comes out, he comes out with chapter two. I'm sorry, not chapter two, uh, the second letter, the second book for us, but the second letter. And in the second letter, he's telling them, look, some of you are getting sidetracked. Some of you are really coming off the path. And so he comes to chapter two and he says, look, You know, when I came to you, uh, the door was open to me and I praise God for the open door. And, you know, he's pretty much saying, I thank God for the open door. And he's saying when I got there in verse 12 and 13, he said, you know, I wanted to rest and relax, but I couldn't rest because I couldn't find my brother who was there. So anyways, you come to verse 14 and not his real brother, his brother in Christ, whatever. But you come to verse 14 and Paul says this. He says, now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge. In every place. Verse 15. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Verse 16. So he clarifies. To those, I'm sorry, to the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Verse 17. For we are not as so many peddling the word of God. There's some people who are pushing the word of God for wrong reasons. He says this, but as since, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. So real quick, this passage, and I'm not going to break down 16 and 17, but 16 really um, years ago set me free. Um, I used to think as a kid, there was a, there's a parable Jesus told about the talents. If you remember that, and this is Bible study, so we're not going to quote everyone. Go back and read it for yourself. But anyways, Jesus gave the parable of the talents. 
And in the parable of the talents, what's interesting is he says, you know, the, the master gave one this many talents. He gave five to the next one. He gave, I think it was like three or two, something like that. Uh, oh, sorry. Dropped my Bible. Um, to one, he gave five. To one, he gave two. To one, he gave one. And anyways, uh, when the time came, the master came back home and he said, okay, now what did you do with the talents I gave you? And the one said, look, you know, you gave me five. I gambled. I made five more. You know, awesome. So he says, great, good. You know, that's good news. The second one came and said, you know, you gave me two. I gambled with it. I risked, you know, took a risk on it and I made two more. Um, And so, you know, the master says, that's great. And then the one who said, the very last one, he says, you know, you gave me one. I didn't do anything with it. I, I dug it in the ground um, and I knew it was yours. I didn't want to risk losing it. Uh, but now that you're back, you can have the one you gave me. Um, and the, if you know the rest of that parable, the master actually gets mad and he throws him in, uh, in the darkness, gnashing of teeth, old King James uh, wording there. Uh, but anyways, all that said to say this, when I was a kid, that parable was really kind of interpreted or I should say it was translated. Um, you know, God has given you the gift of salvation. If you don't go and get someone else saved. Um, you're like that man who God gave the one talent to. You didn't do anything with it. And so if you don't get someone else saved, you're going to go to hell. And that just blew my mind as a kid, right? Um, like I just, I couldn't, I couldn't grasp it. I couldn't comprehend it. But this verse right here set me free because it, what he's saying is this, you are the fragrance of Christ. And through that fragrance to people who are not going to receive Christ, you are the smell of death. But to those who will receive Christ, you're the smell of life. And so in that moment, it's like if you ever shared the gospel with somebody and, you know, they're all ears, they want to hear it. Well, your life to that person, but to someone who's just anti the gospel, anti Christ in that sense, and they want nothing to do with our gospel, you are the smell of death. And so in that sense, what it does is it sets you free because the weight of bringing somebody to Christ isn't really on us. The smell is on us. Whether they'll receive Christ or not has nothing to do with us. We do our part. We bring the gospel and let the Holy Spirit take care of the rest. So this verse set me free, 16 and 17. But I want to share with you really verse 14 and 15. So let's look at 14 one more time and we'll break it apart piece by piece. In verse 14, sorry, I was there. Come on, here we are. So verse 14, look at this. One more time, Paul says, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. All right, now one more time, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. He always leads us in triumph in Christ. Let me say this. Uh, triumph is an old school word. We don't use that anymore. He always leads us in victory in Christ. He never leads us in victory outside of Christ. Now, the re- interesting thing about that, and you know, if, if you know me, you, you come to our church, you know me, you're like, well, Matthew, that's not really a deep thing. We know that. We talk about it. But you know, it's really an awesome reminder that, you know, at the end of the day, victory or um, winning in life doesn't happen because you're smart or because you maneuver or because you do the right things. Victory for every believer happens in Christ. And it means you have to be led into that victory. Let me say it like this. God will never tell you how to win. He'll lead you into that win, into that win if I can say it that way. He'll never tell you what to do to win. He'll show you how to step into the victory. Think about Jehoshaphat. You know, some people might say, well, Jehoshaphat's a a unique story. Everyone else, it wasn't like that. Look at Joshua. God told him what to do. You're right. But even telling him what to do was not go and fight or go and do this or do that. Telling him what to do was really arrest. Joshua, walk around the wall. He never told him to go and fight one person, kill one person, annihilate one. He, he told him, he said, walk around the wall. When they came to Jehoshaphat, and one of my favorite stories, 
Jehoshaphat, just go to the battlefield. It's not your fight. The battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. So again, you get this idea that victory in God's eyes really is not you. Victory now, especially because of the cross, victory now is what God is saying in this sense. Um, I'm sorry. Victory actually, and I, I love that song, belongs to Jesus. All right. So what he's doing is he's saying, every battle you're going to fight, I'm going to lead you into the victory. Don't run into the battle thinking, you know, God, tell me how to win when I get there. No, go to him first and then let him go in front of you. And then when you come behind him, he'll always lead you into victory. Um, I'll say this because I'm pretty sure no one from my job is on here. <laughs> no, um, you know, even when I have problems at work, one of the things I do is in my car, you know, I'll tell the Lord on the way to work, Lord, you know what's going on. You see what's going on. I need your help. And what, it, what happened, what, what, in a sense, what's going on is that the Lord is going before me. He goes to my job before me. And God exists outside of time. So he can step into my job before I get there. He can fix things. He can set things up. But again, he needs me to give it to him. He needs me to admit, Lord, I need your help in this. I need your grace in this. And so anyways, what happens is when you pray like that or when you, you, know, you interact with the Lord like that, your heavenly father, what you're saying is, hey, I need you to go in front of me, lead me into victory. And again, in Christ, when you look at that phrase in Christ, what it means is this. Jesus, uh, the Bible says like this in, in Corinthians, I think it's first Corinthians. He says it like this. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the father. And he's quoting from the Old Testament, but he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Even in Hebrews, he says it as well. To which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand and until I make your enemies your footstool? Well, the same thing he said to Jesus, he says to all of us, you're in Christ. He told Jesus, sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, in Christ, we have to do what Christ is doing. So Jesus is not fighting. Jesus is sitting down. Likewise, for all of us. Our job is not to go and fight every battle. Our job isn't to win every fight. Our job is to literally do what Jesus is doing. Sit down and let God make all of our enemies our footstool. So it's a gospel of peace. It's a gospel of rest. It's a gospel of saying, let Jesus be who Jesus is. Let Jesus do what Jesus does. Our job is not to help him. Our job is to rest in him. In fact, you know, you think about it like this. Every, every time you get into a problem, the best thing you can do Instead of trying to figure out how you're going to win, the best thing we can do, not you, I'm going to say we, myself included, the best thing that we can do instead of trying to figure out how to win, how to maneuver, how to uh, manipulate, and I use that word on purpose, all right, the best thing that we can do is literally go to the Lord and say, Lord, help me figure this out. Or not even help me figure this out. Lord, I need you to solve this problem for me because I don't know what I'm doing. I heard an analogy once years ago, this awesome pastor, he said, think about your problems in life like drowning. You see, most of us think, well, we can handle the small problems, so we only go to God for the big problems. But the reality, if the truth was known, the reality is that every problem we encounter, we really can't handle it. He just gives us grace anyways. But the best way to handle every problem is to see it like this. Whenever you have a problem, look at it as if you're drowning in a pool. Now, when you're drowning in a pool, think about it this way. You yell out to the lifeguard, you know, help me, help me. The lifeguard is going to throw a, 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 you know, one of those circles, like a donut. I can't remember what it's called. But anyways, he throws one of those out into the water. Or let's say this. He himself jumps into the water to save you. When the lifeguard comes to save you, the worst thing you can do is try to help the lifeguard save you. Because you'll end up drowning both of you. The best thing you can do is stop doing anything and let the lifeguard do his job. Christianity is the same exact thing. Stop trying to help our lifeguard or our savior and let him save us. His job is saving us. His title is savior. 
So let him be who he is and let him do what only he can do. So anyways, um, that's just the first part of the first verse. <laughs> Look at the second part of it. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Now, I slowed that down on purpose because I want you to see this. He says, uh, one more time, now thanks be to God who always leads us in victory in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every single place. Again, there is a, well, let me say it like this. As far as God is concerned, the knowledge of him, which is the grace, and I can show you that in the new covenant. I won't, but go back and look at the new covenant. In the new covenant, he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, five times. I will be your God. I will do this. I will do that. And we talk about the law and grace a lot. So go back and listen to those. But anyways, he says this, I will five times. And the reason why he says I will is because he's saying, I'm going to be gracious to you. And then he says this, for or because, at the end of it, for or because, I will be merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Then he says this, no more. I'm sorry, before he says that, he says, no more will one person have to say to his brother or his neighbor, know the Lord, know the Lord. He says, everyone will know me from the least all the way to the greatest because I will be merciful to your unrighteousness and your sins and lawless deeds. I will remember no more. So when you look at that, what you're seeing is God is saying, people are not going to get to know me because they have to go and read the Bible. And I say this graciously and carefully. He's saying people are going to get to know me because I'm going to be gracious to them. Think about it. You know, I say this carefully. How many people have read their Bible but still find a way to bring the law out of it? How many people read the new covenant and still find a way to add on to what God's word says to put people back in bondage? How many people read the Bible and still find a way to condemn people, even though Paul said in Romans chapter eight, after the cross, there is now therefore no condemnation, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How? Because when they read it, they don't see the grace. But right here in the new covenant, God says, all are going to get to know me because I will be gracious to you. So the way God wants people to know him is by his grace. And right here we have a verse in verse 14. He says this, and through all of us, he diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge, the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. How does God want the world to know him? He says it like this. He, he, he references it like a smell. Literally, they're going to get to know me by the smell of grace on you. Now, I love that analogy because what I want you to think about and I want you to see this is that grace is coming off of you like an odor. Grace is coming off you like a perfume. God has doused you in his grace. So everywhere you go, you smell like the grace of God. The grace of God should be happening everywhere you are. Everywhere you are, you should be moving up. Everywhere you are, your mistakes should never bring you back down. Everywhere you are, God's grace or his favor should be working for you. And if it's not working for you, that's a different story altogether. But everywhere you are, he leads you into victory. And, and, and keep, in, keep in mind, in the same breath, in the same verse, he says this, he always leads us to victory in Christ. And in that way, he diffuses the knowledge of him through all of us. How does he do that? He causes you to win graciously, meaning when you shouldn't win, when you made the mistake and you should have gotten in trouble for it or something bad happened and you should have, you know, you should have paid the penalty for it. Instead, he causes his grace to manifest on you and the world smells that grace on you. And that's how they get to know God. Isn't that awesome? God wants people to know him by the grace he puts on you. So then you come to verse 15. He says, for we are to God, the fragrance of Christ. Now, this doesn't, you say, well, Matthew, you know, you're just using one verse. How can you, how can you say all of that? If you look at the very next chapter, he says, you are God's letter written to the whole world. You are God's letter written to the whole world. 
Again, knowing that, what does that mean? Your life, all your sins, but his grace is written on there as well. So when people see your mistakes, they see his grace, and that's how the world gets to know him. So anyways, I'm excited. You look at verse 15, he says, For we, you and me, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Now I'm coming to something, but I want to make sure that we stay on this for one second. He says to God, not to the world, but to God. To the world, maybe, but to God specifically, you are the fragrance of Christ. Now, I want to say this. Let me say it this way. This should give you a certain sense of rest, peace, but really a certain sense of confidence that you may not have had before you knew this. In fact, when I was studying this, just getting ready for this, uh, one of the things, hold on one second. (laughs) When I was just studying this and preparing for this, one of the things that really, really hit me was this verse right here. To God, I am the fragrance of Christ. Now, I say it like I say it that way, and I, and I want to emphasize that for this reason. Keep in mind, when you come into God's presence, God doesn't want you to smell like you. <laughs> he, he doesn't even want you to smell good. He wants you to smell like Jesus, his son. And in fact, in God's presence, he doesn't want anyone to smell like themselves. He wants all of us to smell like Jesus, all of us to smell like his son. And if you smell like his son, then what does that mean? Hey, If you smell like Jesus, then God will bring you into his presence. Now, right here, Paul is not even giving anyone the chance, whether you can or cannot. He's saying, no, no, no. If you're in Christ, you smell like his son. As far as God is concerned, you smell like Jesus. One of the things I love about Paul's letters is this. Paul's letters really aren't like a back and forth of what you can be and what you are not. Paul's letters always come from a perspective of this is what you are. Yes, you might have failed, but this is what you are. Your failure cannot change what you are. And what you smell like to God is Christ. When God smells you, God smells Christ. Now, let me reemphasize this a little bit more. Look at this in, uh, I'm sorry, what is it? Luke chapter 18? I'm sorry, Luke chapter 1. Look at this in Luke chapter 1. And uh, I know I'm sharing a little bit of information tonight. Um, But if you have a question, feel free to comment and I will do my best to stop what I'm doing and answer. Since we're only doing this on one platform instead of also on my Facebook page, I can uh, see what people are writing or see what people are doing. So that's it. If you want to comment, you're more than welcome. Look at this in Luke chapter 1. Now, in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, um, John the Baptist, his, his father, all right, he's an old man and his mother is an old woman. And John is not yet born. Uh, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin who would come before him. But keep in mind, John the Baptist, uh, I'm sorry, Zacharias' father was a priest in the, in the temple, all right? Or in the sanctuary, whatever you want to call it, the temple. Uh, and when the time came for the lot to be cast, keep in mind, Zacharias was an old man. He didn't have any sons. He didn't have any daughters. He didn't have any children. Uh, and his wife hadn't given birth to any children. So, any children. so when you look at this couple, um, a lot like Abraham and Sarah, no children, all right? And to be barren was almost looked at like a curse, but keep in mind, and we shared this in our sermon, um, in my message I did two Christmases ago called God Remembers. I was listening to that just a couple of weeks ago. Man, that message actually blessed me. I was like, man, that, that preacher is good. Uh, somebody needs to hear this sermon. But anyways, no, nah, I'm joking. It, it, it's my sermon, but it was, a, it was a powerful message. And I went back and listened to it, and it really blessed me. So go back and listen to God Remembers. Awesome message. But anyways, uh, keep in mind, well, let's just read. Zacharias doesn't have any children. His wife doesn't have any children. And the lot is cast and it falls on him. So it says right here in Luke chapter 1, verse 8, it says, So so it was that while 
Zacharias was serving as a priest before God in the order of his division. According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn the incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fell, on, fell upon him. Verse 13, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, in that sermon, you can go back and listen to it because this is an awesome message. But in that message, one of the things I was sharing was, um, if you understand the Greek tense here and you understand what the angel actually said, what he literally was saying was this, the prayer that you prayed years ago and the prayer that you stopped praying, literally what he was saying was this, the prayer you stopped praying for a child, God heard it. Now, the tense actually implies God is still hearing it, meaning that prayer never left God. It never left his throne. It never left his ears. God heard it. God is still hearing it now. But the prayer wasn't answered then because God has something that he wanted to do for you specifically. You see, the beautiful thing with, with this story is, you know, God could have given him a son years and years ago. But he chose to give him a son that would come and would precede his son, Jesus. And the son that he would give Zacharias would be the forerunner that goes before the Savior of the world. So again, you know, it wasn't the, the answer that Zacharias was looking for. But it was a better answer that God had for him. So anyways, you read this right here. Uh, you can actually go through and read the rest all the way to verse 18. You realize that the answer that God gives is amazing. But what I want to point out to you is this. John's name means grace. Yohanan in the Hebrew literally means the grace of Yahweh. When you see this, he says, call him John or literally call him grace. God answers the prayer and he wants you to know that the answer to your prayer is to be named grace. Literally name the answer to your prayer grace. And right here, right here, notice where did the answer come? The answer came at the altar of incense. Now, for years, growing up in a word of faith environment, one of the things I used to hear all the time, your prayer goes up like an incense. Your prayer goes up like an incense. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you probably heard that at some point. Uh, our prayers go up like a sweet-smelling aroma before the Lord. Your prayers like an incense. Um, let me say this. That actually came from a verse in Revelation. Now, in Revelation, all right, the same John, not the same John we're talking about, but John who wrote the gospel of John, all right, John sees a vision, and in the vision, the angel goes before the throne of God, but before he does, he takes incense from the altar, and he offers it up with the prayers of the people, meaning the incense is not the prayer. Now, it's important that you understand that, because again, the incense is not the prayer, okay? Now, you have to remember that, because what happens is this, we start thinking our prayers are like a sweet-smelling aroma to God, and they're not. <laughs> Most of us, if the truth was known, we're not praying the right things. If the truth is known, we're not praying the right way. We don't say the right things. We pray from a, uh, from a place of defeat. When God is saying, I want you to pray from a place of victory, one of the most powerful prayers in the Bible to me was Jonah. Jonah was in the well, in the belly of the well, and he starts praying to God as if God had already answered his prayer, as if God had already saved him from the well. And if you know anything about that prayer in that story, by the time he finishes praying, the well spits him out onto the, to the, to the dry land. So again, it's one of those things, the most powerful prayers are not prayers that come from defeat, asking God to help us get to a place of victory. The most powerful prayers are the prayers that come from a place of faith that says, God, I 
thank you that you already answered. God, I thank you that you already moved. You already healed. You already did this. And it's just a changing of perspective. But again, most of us, if the truth was known, we don't really pray the right things. Most of us are praying, oh God, you know, give me revenge on this person. Or, or, or God, y'all know you're going to take care of this person because of what they did for me. And God is the whole time saying, look, I want them to get to know me through the grace in you. Stop asking me for revenge and let me take care of you in the middle of it. My favor will take care of the rest. So again, if that's the truth, our prayer is really not a sweet smelling aroma to God. But what happens is this, at the end of your prayer, when you say in the name of Jesus, or I'm sorry, or in Jesus's name, what happens is this, you're taking this prayer and like the angel, you're putting in Jesus name, you're taking the incense of Jesus. And I'm going to show you that in just a moment, but you're taking the incense and you're putting it together with your prayer. So all the imperfections of your prayer, all the things that you should have said, or you should not have said, all right. What happens is our high priest goes in before God and he takes that prayer and he mixes it with the with his incense in the name of Jesus. And with that incense, he literally offers it up to God. And when God gets our prayer, God says, oh, my gosh, that was um, that prayer was awesome. That prayer was magnificent. That prayer was powerful. And if the truth was known, it didn't really come from a place of power or a place of confidence. But because we have a perfect high priest who passed through the veil that was his own flesh and brought all of us into the Holy of Holies, that high priest, when you say in the name of Jesus, that fragrance gets put onto your horrible prayers and God smells a sweet smelling aroma and God moves. Meaning you don't have to pray the perfect prayer. You just have to say in the name of Jesus. And your high priest takes care of the rest. Now, again, knowing all of this, it's important to know your prayer is not the sweet-smelling aroma. It's not the sweet-smelling incense, all right? Now, let me say this. Uh, Zacharias went in, and it was at the altar of incense, where he would have gotten the incense. At the altar, God gave him his answer. And at the altar, the answer was, you will have a son, call him Grace. The answer for all of us, to still to this day, it has not changed. The answer for all of us is the grace of God. The unearned undeserved, unmerited favor of God. It's not how good you are. It's not how bad you are. It's not what you've done. It's not what you will do. It's what Jesus has done. It's not even, and I say this carefully, it's not even your obedience in actions and deeds. It's your, it's the obedience of what Jesus Christ did at the cross for all of us. And if we can trust that it was his obedience, not ours, that qualified us, I'm telling you, you'll find more rest and peace than you ever found in your life. Now, Let's keep going because this is Bible study. You know me. Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. Now I'm coming to something. I want you to read. Um, I want to share a story in numbers. But before we get there, I want you to see this in Exodus chapter 30. Now I'm going to read Exodus 30 from the NIV. All right. I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to uh, read it from the New King James, which to me is the best translation there is. <laughs> I joke too much. Anyways. Let me read this to you. I actually printed it out so that uh, I wouldn't have to have two Bibles up here. So I'm going to read this to you. I want you to see this. Exodus chapter 30. Now, in Exodus chapter 30, God has given the instructions for how to uh, approach him on the Day of Atonement, if I'm not mistaken. And he's telling him, look, one of the things you have to do is you have to have a censer. All right. Now, a censer is really, um, in a lot of ways, it's just kind of like a long, kind of like a cone shape at the top. Um, there's a kind of like a bowl at the top and you can hold it at the bottom. So anyways, I probably should have had a picture printed out for you or something. Uh, my fault. Should have done that. But anyways, you have this thing with a bowl at the top. And the reason why is you hold it at the bottom. Or I can use this paper. You hold it at the bottom like this. And at the top is kind of a wider. All right. 
wide at the top with a little bowl in it. And what you would do is you would take the spices and you put the spice on the inside. Um, and then you would take fire from the altar, the bronze altar, where the judgment passes. All right. You put the fire from the bronze altar in on top of the incense and it burns. And as it burns, the smell that comes up from it, God says that is the sweet smelling aroma. All right. So anyways, God is saying now in Exodus 30, verse 34, he says, I'm going to give you the ingredients. So in verse 34, reading from the NIV, which is a little easier to understand. He says, then the Lord said to Moses, take fragrant spices. All right. You ready? Here's the fragrant spices. Gum resin. Number one, onica. Number two, and galbanum. Number three, and pure frankincense. Number four, all in equal amounts. Now, anytime you see the number four, keep in mind, number four speaks to the four faces of Jesus. We're not going to get into that tonight, but the four gospels, the four faces of Jesus. You know, if you were to write a story about Matthew Edwards, you could write Matthew Edwards, the pastor. All right. Which if you're watching this on Facebook, the one you probably know, Matthew Edwards, the pastor. You can go back and write another book, Matthew Edwards, the husband. All right. I'm sorry, not you. Christina could go back and write another book, Matthew Edwards, the husband. Parker could grow up a little later on and write a book called Matthew Edwards, the father. All right. Uh, and my parents could write a book called Matthew Edwards, the son. Four different perspectives of the same person. All true. And some of them will probably have the same stories. All true. But four different perspectives of the same person. So what you see in the Gospels, four different perspectives of the same person. All true but four different perspectives, four different approaches to the same person. So again, when you see the number four in the Bible, what you're looking at is the four faces of Jesus or the four gospels, the four perspectives of him. But notice that's number four. But then he says this, it is to be salted and pure and sacred. So right here, he gives four spices and then he gives number five. Now you can say number five is a spice, but you know, for the sake of argument, salt, let's just call it a spice. For the sake of argument, all right? So you get four. One more time. Gum resin, onica, galbanum, and pure frankincense. Verse 35. And make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It is to be salted, number five. Right there. When you see the number five, keep in mind, five is the number for grace. So what he's saying is this. If you want that sweet-smelling aroma, that sweet-smelling aroma we were talking about that the priest puts with your prayers, all right, that gets the answer that you need from God. If you want that sweet-smelling aroma, you've got to have the five different spices, all right? Now, I just quoted them. You can read it for yourself. Exodus 30, verse 34 and 35. But the five spices, now again, you have the first four, the first four gospels, um, the first four, the four gospels, all right? But then number five is salt. Now, let me say this. Paul... I think it's in Ephesians. Paul said this, and I say this in our church a lot, so you probably already know where I'm going. But in Ephesians, Paul says this, let your conversation be seasoned with, I'm sorry, let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt. So salt is a picture or a type and shadow of the grace of God. So anytime you see salt in the Old Testament, what you see is it's a shadow or a type of the grace of God. In fact, when uh, David was king, God made a prophecy to David, or God was speaking to a prophet, and he said this about David. I have given the kingdom of Israel to David under a covenant of salt. Really interesting. I mean, it just kind of, the first time I understood that salt and grace were one and the same, and it's really just a shadow of, in the old, when I saw that verse, I was like, whoa, you know, that blew my mind. God was trying to hide the grace of God because Jesus hadn't come yet. But what he was literally saying was, I gave the kingdom to David under a covenant of grace or a covenant of salt. So when you see salt, what you're seeing is grace. And right here, the fifth element is salt. Five spices, grace. Now, when you see the first four of the first four gospels, the fifth one, you have the book of Acts. 
You have the four Gospels, which speak the grace of God four different times. But then you have the fruit of the cross, literally the fruit of the cross, the acts of the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts. Right here, you have the grace of God manifesting. And it's beautiful. Man, it's awesome. So anyways, go back and read the, go back and read the Gospels. I was talking to uh, one of my, one of my uh, a friend at work. She was telling me that her church right now, they're in the book of Acts. And I was like, man, Acts is like a soap opera. Let me say this. If you're looking for the drama, go read Acts. I'm telling you, Acts is just an awesome book to read. If you're looking for something to read with a lot of drama. I love reading Acts just for, this, for the simple fact of it's an awesome story. But anyways, uh, we're still in Exodus 34. Look at verse 36. He gives the five different ingredients. And then he says this, grind some of it into powder, grind some of it to powder and place it in front of the Ark of the Covenant in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Now, let me tell you what's going on. Literally what happens is this. God says, take the five different spices, put them in one spot, grind it, crush it, beat it, grind it, crush it and beat it. Then with that, I want you to put it into the censer. All right. And when you come to meet me on the day of atonement, I want you to put it down at the foot of the altar. I'm sorry, the foot um, of the Ark of the Covenant where God himself is. And he says this, as the incense fills the room, literally as it would fill the room, the smoke uh, and the fragrance from the censer burning, as that smoke would fill the room, God would meet him through the smoke that filled, because the smoke would literally sit and rest between the two cherubim facing the mercy seat. So literally, God is saying, I'm going to meet you through the smoke, through the fragrance, through the smell. All right. So when they came in on the day of atonement, that one time of year, when the priest came in with blood, he also came in with the censer, with the incense. And when the blood was sprinkled on the altar, the incense would fill the room and the priest would just look down and wait. And while he's looking down, God would literally appear in the smoke right there in the room with the incense. Now, knowing this, knowing this, what that tells me is this. If all five speak of the grace of God, God says, I want all of them beaten and crushed, beaten and crushed, beaten and crushed. Then, okay, well, let's take that piece by piece. What happened to Jesus for all of us? He was beaten. He was crushed. He was beaten and crushed. Isaiah 53 uh, we thought that he was, we thought all the, all that happened to him was a punishment or a payment for what he did wrong, but it wasn't what he did. God put on him all the trespasses and sins of us and by his stripes, by his beatings, by his bruisings, by his crushing, by his stripes, all of us were healed. But again, keep in mind, it has to be beaten and crushed, meaning Jesus was beaten and crushed for all of us. Then what does he say? It's not good enough just for it to be beaten and crushed. If you really want the smell, if you want to be able to smell it, all right, that sweet smell that God is talking about, if you want to smell it, if I want it, it has to be set on fire. It's not enough for it to just be beaten and crushed. The fire has to fall on it. Now, when you put fire on it, that's when the smell comes up. Think about Jesus at the cross. It wasn't enough that he was beaten and crushed. At the cross, Jesus cried out, I thirst after hanging in darkness for three hours. Three hours in darkness on the cross. All of a sudden, the clouds part. The sun comes back out, still hanging on the cross. What happens? Jesus cries out, I thirst to let all of us know that the fire has fallen on him. And because the fire fell on him, now the dew or the grace of God, like in Gideon's story, now the dew has been dispersed to all of us. Where the dew was all in one place in Christ, he was beaten and crushed, beaten and crushed. Darkness fell. The dew was dispersed to all of us. And when the sun came back out, Jesus was left with no more dew, no more grace in him. 
And in that moment, at that very moment, Jesus said, the Bible says this in John, it says, Jesus, knowing that all things had been fulfilled, cried out, I thirst. And they brought him the sour wine. And in that moment, he set all of us free from every generational curse. We don't have time to go into that, but keep in mind, every generational curse ended in that moment that Jesus said, I thirst. And they brought him the sour wine. No more will the, will the people say, God says this in Isaiah or Jeremiah. I can't remember. I think it's Isaiah. It's Jeremiah. <laughs> he says, no more will the people say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, their children's teeth are set on edge. In that moment, when Jesus said, I thirst, they brought him sour wine, sour grapes. And all of us were set free from every generational curse. What your parents went through, you do not have to go through. What you go through, your children will not have to go through. All that you have to do is declare, Jesus set me free from the generational curse. The same thing I have to say over myself and I say over Parker all the time. Jesus set Parker free from every generational curse. Jesus set me free from every generational curse. And you know what? As the husband who is the head of my house, I have to say over my house, every generational curse has been broken over me, my wife, and over my son. There are no generational curses in my home. In the name of Jesus. And that's our prayer for everyone who calls Center Church home. Every generational curse is broken for you and yours. What your parents went through, you will not have to suffer with. And what you go through, your children will never have to suffer with. Jesus set us free. I'm telling you, the gospel of Jesus Christ is beautiful. I didn't want to go on that trail because I'm trying to come to something. But anyways, we're looking at the fragrances, all right? Let's keep going. We're looking at the fragrances, okay? So again, all five fragrances speak of Jesus, but it has to be beaten just like Jesus was beaten. And then it has to be set on fire just like Jesus was set on fire for all of us. And then he sets us free. So let me bring this to it. Let me show you a really, really cool story. And then I'm going to share one more verse and I'll be finished, all right? Look at this in Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. Numbers 16, man, let's do this. Numbers chapter 16. Now I'm going to tell you, uh, we're going to read a story. We're going to read 41 down to 48. Uh, but before we read the story, I want you to understand what's going on here. Uh, Cause this is a crazy story. Uh, you should read the whole chapter 16 for yourself. Crazy story. So what happens is this in number 16, Moses and Aaron are still leading the people. Aaron is the high priest. Moses is the leader. He's really acting more like a prophet. Um, and Aaron, his brother, is acting like the, not acting, but he is the priest, okay? Now, I say Moses was acting because his position really wasn't really defined that well. God actually told the people, he said, you know, you're challenging my, my, my choice in leadership with Moses. He said, when it comes to prophets, I speak in dreams and visions. When it comes to kings, I speak in riddles and other things. But when it comes to Moses, I speak to him face to face. There is no mistaking the clarity that I have when I speak to Moses. So Moses, he was like a prophet, but he wasn't. There, I mean, there was, there's a really distinct, there's some gray area. But God spoke to Moses. Moses was the mouthpiece. He represented God. When Moses misrepresented God, it cost him the ability to lead God's people into the promised land, which is a scary thing for anyone who says, I want to be a leader in the house of God. And I say that from personal experience. <laughs> so that said, anyways, Moses is representing God to the people, which is what a prophet does. A prophet represents God to the people, but the priest represents the people to God. Keep in mind, Jesus did not come as a prophet. Yes, he represented God for all of us, but he came and became our high priest, went back to God and represented all of us to the father. All right. Now, knowing that, keep in mind, in this story, Moses is leader, Aaron is the high priest. Well, one day Korah comes up and says, why do Moses and Aaron think that they're the only ones who can lead us? Don't they know that we 
as Levites also serve in the house of God and that we can hear from God just like Moses can. Paraphrasing, of course. Well, Moses comes in him and says, who is Aaron, talking about his brother, who is Aaron that you should challenge him? All right. He's just like one of you. Look, he was chosen by God. Let him do what God called him to do. Why are you challenging him? Well, anyways, they go to God and God gets involved and God says, fine, do this. Take all the rods of the elders of the people and put their rods in front of the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Put it here in, in, the, on, in the tabernacle of meeting. He said, and come back in the morning. And the one that has budded fruit, that's the one I've chosen. All right. So the next morning they come and sure enough, all their rods, their staffs, their sticks that have been broken off from the tree long years and years and years ago that have no life in them. All of them look exactly the same except for Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod has budded fruit, almond leaves and almond fruit. Now it's really cool. And again, this is a side note. I'm just trying to, I'm not trying, but I'm kind of going off track, but this is just cool facts. I think you'll enjoy. Do you know that the first tree to bloom in spring in Israel is the almond tree? Keep in mind, in winter, everything dies, but in spring, everything comes back to life. Spring is when Jesus uh, came back to life, all right? It was in springtime. Uh, Easter, or for us, Easter or Resurrection Sunday, uh, Passover happens during the spring season, all right? Because it's a picture of something that's dead, but it's coming back to life. The first tree to come back to life in Israel every year is the almond tree. Interesting that the rod would bud almond leaves and almond fruit. So anyways, you see right there, it speaks of Jesus, the resurrection. Literally what God is saying, every ministry that I'm marking that's from me will give resurrection life. It will give the grace of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, but it will also bring his resurrection forth. All right. So anyways, that's how he says, I, that's how you know that Aaron was the one that's called. So anyways, he, everyone knows that Aaron's called, but they still rebel. And after they rebelled, God says, all right, Moses, tell everybody stand back. Whoever's on Korah's side, you stand on that side of this line. And everyone who's on the side of, on my side, you stand on this side. So everyone who's with Korah stands over there. And all of a sudden, Moses says, if God has chosen me, then let the ground open up and swallow Korah alive. All of a sudden, the ground opens up and swallows Korah, his family, his belongings, straight into the ground. And that is the end of Korah. Now, <laughs> knowing that story. They go and they get all the censors of, the, of those people, all the elders, everyone who was in Korah's family, everyone who had a censor. They go and they take it. And God said, now that my judgment has fallen on Korah, all right, because they were holding their censors, their censors, okay, what they would bring with the incense, because they were holding those, anytime my judgment passes, whatever has been judged, anything that's left is now made holy. Now come and bring it into my house. Now let me say this, in Christ, because the judgment fell on Jesus and you and I, you and me, were in Christ Jesus, all right? We have died with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. Because the judgment fell on you and me in Christ, that means you and me are holy in Christ. So anyway, side note, I love that. Side note, they have to take all the censers and put them in the tabernacle. Now I'm bringing this to a close, okay? What happens is this. We come to verse 41. It says, on the next day. After this happened, on the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to register. Moses could not open the ground. Moses could not have done what happened to Korah. But it doesn't matter. They saw this. They slept on it. And the next morning, they all came together and said, nope, Moses, you are responsible for his death. 
Verse 42, now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting and suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Now watch this. God is mad. Then verse 43, then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. Now keep in mind, they've already gone through Mount Sinai. They've already received the law. And wherever the law is, sin is credited to the sinner. Before the law came, when they complained, God never punished them. When they uh, were threatening to kill Moses, God never punished them. Any time before Mount Sinai, when they sinned, God never punished them. But after Mount Sinai, when the law came in, now they are responsible for every single sin they commit. So they complain, Moses, you did this. This is your fault. God shows up. And God says, what he, look what he says in verse 45. Moses and Aaron, get away from this congregation that I might consume them in a moment. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. Now watch this. I'm coming to something. Verse 46. So Moses said to Aaron, after they fall on their face, he looks over at Aaron. He says, he says, Aaron, take a censer and put fire in it from the altar. Put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For the wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Now, I want you to see this picture. Moses looks over Aaron, probably on the ground and says, Aaron, quick, go get a censer, put fire in it, put incense in it and go out to the people because the wrath, the anger of God has already gone into the crowd. Now, Moses knew something. He knew a couple things. Number one, he knew as the leader, it was not his place to do that. Yes, he was the leader, but the ones that carry the incense are not the, not the prophets. It's the priests that carry the incense. So he looks at his brother who's qualified. He says, you go get the incense and you take it. Keep in mind, and I'm, for the sake of time, I'll go ahead and break this down. Keep in mind, Revelation, he says this, by the blood of Jesus, he has made you and me, believers in Christ. We are kings and priests. So you are qualified to carry the incense of God in you. Not because of what you've done, but because the blood of Jesus has made you a priest. You carry the fragrance of God on you. So anyways, he says, quick, go get the incense and take it out to the people because the plague's already started. So what does Aaron do? So Aaron took it as Moses commanded, verse 47, ran into the midst of the assembly and already the plague had begun among the people. So he put in the incense. Now watch this. He grabs the incense. He grabs the censer and he starts running through the midst of the people. And he's, you know, Aaron's an older man at this point. All right. But he's decked out in his high priest apparel, which we talked about last Sunday. Go look at the picture. And he's running through. But as he's running, the people are literally dying. As the plague moves like this, people are dying. As, it, as the plague moves across the people, the way you can see the plague is because you see the people falling down dead. And Aaron is running through death to get to the plague, to stop it from killing anyone else. Finally, he gets to the middle of the plague. And right when he gets to the middle, he takes the incense, he puts it on top of the censer, holds the censer up, and what do you see? So he put incense on it and made atonement for the people. Now watch this. The moment he put the incense in it, atonement means a covering. The incense, the fragrance covered everyone who had not died yet. That fragrance covered everyone who hadn't yet died. And then you see verse 48, and he stood between the dead and the living. So the plague was stopped. Now, I want you to see this, and I'm bringing this to a close. I want you to see this. It wasn't that he got on his knees and begged God. It wasn't that he said, quick, go make an offering for sin. It wasn't that he, he didn't do any of that. He didn't do any of that. He didn't tell the people, God requires you to apologize to me and God demands, God demands. Once the plague had gone out, Moses knew the only way to stop it is for God to smell the fragrance 
of judgment already being passed. You see, the fragrance, again, had to be beaten, had to be crushed, then it had to be set on fire. And what that speaks to God is that something has already been paid. What it means is that the, the payment, the judgment has already passed. So when God smells the incense, it means someone has already been crushed. Someone has already been set on fire. Someone has already received the judgment. When God smells it, he calls it sweet because to him, to God, it means my son's already paid for it. That's what the smell means to God. If that's what it means to him. Keep in mind, Aaron runs through, holds up the censer. And when God smelt that incense, all of a sudden the judgment had to stop. Or let's say it this way, the way the Bible says it. The plague had to stop. And Aaron stood between the living and the dead. Now today, Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our high priest. In one way. What we're looking at with the COVID-19 and everything else, Jesus is your high priest standing at the door of your house, holding up the censer, declaring everyone in this home smells like that sweet, has a sweet smelling aroma on them. Everyone in this home smells like me. Everyone in this home. Because in 2 Corinthians, he said, you have the fragrance of Christ. So what he's saying is, Father, they all smell like me. So there's no plague that can come here. Everyone outside this house I say this graciously, the, the plague, death, but in this house, there can only be life because the fragrance of grace is on everyone in this home. And then secondly, when you go out of your house into the world, you carry the fragrance of Jesus Christ on you. You carry the fragrance of, of, of Jesus on you. You smell like Christ, not just to God, but to the world. You smell like Christ. So keep in mind, wherever you find yourself this week, last week, or next week, it doesn't matter. I'm not trying to say, look, be stupid. Like we said in church, don't be stupid. Be conscious of what's going on in the world. But to that same degree, keep in mind, you carry the fragrance of Jesus. Now, that's in light of the COVID-19. But let's take it one step further. Look at your personal life, your, your own, your family. When you look at your family and you say, Lord, my family's not where I want them to be. They're not, you know, you know Lord, help me. <laughs> Fill in the blank. Lord, help me. How do I get from here to there? It feels like Satan is wreaking havoc in my life. It feels like all the problems I'm going through is like they're wreaking havoc. Like I need my family to get back together. I need these things to be fixed. I need these problems to be taken care of. Lord, I'm going through hell on earth right now in this moment. Forget COVID-19. I'm dealing with other issues. No matter what you're going through, you have the fragrance of Jesus Christ on you. And I'm telling you, it's the fragrance of grace that causes every plague to stop right where it's at. Jesus stands between the dead and the living, and you are in him. Oh, man, I'm telling you, I love this story. What happened is, and I'll tell you this, this, this message actually came out of, I want to say it was Wednesday night. I was in bed, falling asleep, and I heard the Lord say, the fragrance stopped the plague. Then I heard him say this, he stands between the dead and the living. And I knew exactly what the Lord was saying. And when I heard the Lord say that, I literally grabbed my phone, and I forced myself to wake up and type it, and then I put my phone back on, uh, you know, I put it back on the charger and I went back to sleep. And out of that came what I'm sharing tonight. Jesus literally stands between the dead and the living. He made a difference between you and everyone else. I'm telling you, Jesus made a difference between you and everyone else. Now, let me close with this. Let me close with this. All right. Now, I know we're right at 56 minutes. I apologize, but this is Bible study. And as always at Bible study, it is what it is. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. I want to share you this, show you this from Song of Solomon. I want to show you this from uh, Song of Solomon chapter 4. Song of Solomon chapter 4. Uh, this is my mom's book, so I don't know if she's watching tonight, but thank you, Ma. 
Song of Solomon chapter 4. Where am I going? That is not the right way. I apologize. You know what? I don't even... I printed it out because I'm reading it from the, uh, the NIV. So I printed it out. Here we go. All right. Song of Solomon chapter 4. Let me close with this. In Song of Solomon chapter 4, what you see, what you're about to see is this. Uh, it's a picture of the whole book. It's really a picture of the king. It's a picture of Jesus. And the woman, who is a picture of the church. And uh, I was actually meditating on this the other day. This was awesome to me. It just blew my mind because I never thought about it until I was meditating on it. Uh, but anyways, what happens is this. From the beginning of the book, the king, Solomon, a picture of Christ, he sees this woman and he thinks she is gorgeous. She's beautiful. There's nothing in her that's wrong. He says, I want you. Over everyone else, I want you. Uh, if you know Solomon's story, Solomon had like a thousand different women in his life. A thousand different women in his life. But anyways, of all the women who he probably wrote songs for, when you come to Song of Solomon, it's also called Song of Songs. Because the way he feels about her, he writes the greatest song of all time for this one woman. And again, what you're seeing is a picture of Jesus and the church. So anyways, he sees her and he says, man, there is nothing wrong with you. You are beautiful from head to toe. I mean, even your teeth. I mean, I can joke about that. But he says, your teeth are like sheep that have come up fresh from the washing. I mean, he says all these things about her. He just thinks she's beautiful. But in chapter one, she says, well, you know, I'm not beautiful. I'm not this. I'm not that. And he says, no, no, no. You are altogether lovely. There is no spot in you. There's no blemish. You know, in chapter two, chapter three, she's still going through this. By the time you get to the end of the book, she's finally submits to the fact. All right. I, you know, I belong to him and he finds pleasure in me. You see her mature. Her love in the beginning is he's mine. He belongs to me. Then her love changes from he is mine to I am his and he is mine. So she's starting to mature. At first, it's all about what she feels. He belongs to me. Then she matures to, I belong to him, but he belongs to me still. And finally, at the very end of the book, she says, I belong to him and he delights himself in me. Meaning, I belong to him and I can rest because I know that I make him smile. I mean, that's the position of the church. The church has had to mature in the love of Christ. At first, it was all about, well, this is my Jesus. And, you know, this is my Bible, my gospel, my God. You can't, you can't come in here like that. You, you know, but then we started to mature in the love of God for us. Then it became, well, it's not just how we feel about God. It's how God feels about us. And then finally, that final stage is what? It has nothing to do with how we feel at all, but it's everything to do with his love for us and knowing that he delights himself in us, the church. So anyways, it's an awesome story of Christ and the church. And I'm closing. I'm sorry, I'm closing. But anyways, the thing that really stuck out to me before I read this verse, which is so powerful to me, was this. I was listening to the uh, the podcast. And on the podcast, we were talking about husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, which is in Ephesians. Go back and listen to uh, Christ-centered husbands in the family uh, section of our podcast, one of the earlier sermons uh, we did on... Anyways, on the podcast, you can listen to it. But anyways, on the husband section, we were, I was sharing about um, husbands, you have to use your words to, to, to help your wife. Use your words to protect your wife, to cleanse your wife in that sense. But what's so cool is Solomon does the same exact thing. He uses his words to mature her. He uses his words to protect her. He uses his words to cause her to rest. And he never at one time does anything other than use his words. It's his words that perfect her and bring her to where she needs to be. Likewise, Jesus is not punishing the church. He's just using his words to perfect the church. He's using his words to show the church. You don't have to keep yourself in self-righteousness. You can step out of self-righteousness and step into my grace because it's not about how you feel about me, but how I feel about you. And the church is getting to that point. Now, in closing, let me share this. 
in Song of Solomon chapter four, what happens is this, the, the, the church, the woman, she's not there yet, but she's getting there. She is getting there. And in chapter four, all of a sudden the king looks at her and he says this. He says this to her in verse nine. He says, you have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine? This is all in verse 10. And the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Now, again, what are we talking about? The fragrance, right? It's the fragrance on us speaks of Jesus, right? That fragrance. But look at this in verse 11. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Now, let me say this. The fragrance of Lebanon was like the greatest fragrance that they could find back then. All right. But literally what he's saying is this. It's the smell on you. It's that smell that, that just intoxicates me. That odor, that, that, that perfume, whatever you're wearing. He says, that fragrance to me speaks volumes. And at this point, she's not even there yet. She's not perfect yet. Her love is still maturing. She has a little ways to go. But at this point, he's looking at her and he's telling her, it's your fragrance that's making the difference. Now, I want, I'm going to say this and I'm going to close with this. All right. What makes the fragrance so important, why I want to share this tonight is this. In God's presence, it's not what you've done, but it's the smell on you. God doesn't want anyone to think in his presence, I have favor because I did the right things or God favors me because, you know, I had this or I grew up like this or I've always done this and, you know, I've always felt like this. So that's why I have the favor. No, God wants you to know it's not you that I'm smelling. It's Jesus I'm smelling on you. And because it's Jesus that I smell on you, know this. You can never be prideful. You can never be in, step into self-righteousness. You always have to say, it's the smell of Jesus that put me here. It's the smell of Jesus that gets my prayers answered. It's the smell of Jesus that causes every plague to stop at my door. It's the smell of Jesus. It's the fragrance of the cross that set me free, not just from sin, not just from the curse, but set me free from myself. In him, I can actually rest. I can relax. It's what Jesus did for all of us. So I'm going to close with this. I love you. Thank you for watching. Um, I know that we've gone an hour and two minutes. I never meant to go that long. I apologize. I never mean to go that long anyways, but this is Bible study. Uh, and in my, in my heart, I believe, I'm telling you, in my heart, I believe that the more we see Jesus like this and unveil Jesus, what he did, he takes care of the rest. So let me pray for you. I'm going to let you go. We're not going to take communion tonight, but we will definitely take it Sunday, for the sake of time, I love you. So I'm going to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your fragrance, the fragrance of Jesus, covers everyone who's watching this, everyone who's listening to this. Your fragrance has covered them. Father, it's your fragrance that covers our houses, that covers uh, everything you've given us and everyone you've brought into our life. Father, I thank you that the plague, COVID-19, has to stop where it is because your fragrance covers us. And Father, I thank you, Jesus stands between the dead and the living. Jesus has stood in our place, and there we behold the glory of him. We behold the glory of Jesus. And as we look at him, I thank you, Lord, you have transformed all of us from death into life, from glory to glory, from grace to grace. And so right now, Father, even outside of COVID-19, who anyone who's watching, listening, wherever we're getting this, Father, anyone who's going through any problem right now, I thank you and I declare that your fragrance has set us free from that life of doom and gloom, that life of destruction. It's the fragrance of Jesus Christ that declares judgment has been passed. So favor must be executed for all of us. 
So, Father, tonight we receive that favor right now, that unmerited favor, that unearned favor. We receive it right now in the name of Jesus. And we thank you for it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to Center Church Podcast. We trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to receive more of our content in the future, you can email us at centercharlotte at gmail.com or just visit our website at centercharlotte.org. Thanks for tuning in and may God's grace cover you in every area of your life.